Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Vox Media is looking for a senior designer. This is a remote position. Workday is looking for a senior UX product designer in the following cities. Seattle, Beaverton, Atlanta, Boulder, San Francisco, Pleasanton, and in Victoria, British Columbia. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. This week, I'm bringing back Husani Oakley. You might remember him from episode 40. Husani is the director of creative practices at Netflix. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Husani Oakley. I am the Director of Creative Practices at Netflix. That's a pretty big title. I was going to ask, like, you know, what all has changed since you were last on the show, which was in 2014, your episode 40. That's a long time ago. Tell me more about this new role in Netflix. It sounds exciting. It was a very long time ago. That's a whole two jobs in a global panini ago. That's that's crazy. It was that long. Yeah. So my role at Netflix is in a group called Product Creative Studio. It's a new role, even though Product Creative Studio isn't necessarily new. Um, We're part of a team of people that are responsible for launching titles on platforms. So all shows all movies, whether they are Netflix originals or our non-original content that ends up on the platform globally, everything related to how those titles appear on platform. Everything from the descriptions, the synopses that appear when you're looking for something to watch to the tagging that appears, but specifically the art and clips and trailers that appear in the rows when you're on the Netflix homepage and when you're on one of our titled detail pages. That's the sort of work that's done in my on my side of the organization. And my department, and thus my role specifically, is looking at that work from a creative perspective, less than an operational perspective, and trying to figure out ways to make that work the best possible work for our members. We really want that art and those trailers and those clips to stand out and give you enough information as a member to let you decide whether this is something for you and you're going to hit play and watch, we present you that evidence. And I mean, it can't be overstated just how big even Netflix has become in the past 
seven years. I mean, it really was something that was largely, I, I remember back then, I feel like it was mostly largely just for the United States or maybe for the Americas. But now, I mean, it truly is a global platform, not just in terms of reach of members, but also the content that it offers. Like I see trailers every week from content that's in Spain, that's in Italy, that's in Nigeria, that's in South Korea, like everywhere. That's what is both, I think, amazing to see from the inside and then as a member to also experience from the outside. The, our content is, we are a global company. Our content is global. The way we create that content is global. But by global, I don't mean from one location and spread throughout the world, right? It's not one to many. It's mm -hmm. really many to many. Squid Game, I think, is a great example that came out of South Korea for South Koreans. It was so great. Everyone on the planet ended up watching it, right? But the way we think about this, this global scale and reach, it's almost like every area has its own Netflix. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the platform is that content from those little Netflixes can be seen by members of, of Netflix as a whole. Now, you started this role last year. Like, how was it starting something this big during the pandemic? You know, I gotta say, I was really scared. <laughs> I was really scared to start during, during the pandemic. The role I was coming out of, I'd been in for a couple of years. So I knew everyone I worked with, right? And then we went into the pandemic. And so you're on calls all day, every day with people, but you know them because you've known them before everything changed. Mm -hmm. I was really scared about the ability to form relationships with my peers, with my bosses, and certainly with the team that I lead only over a screen without having any indication of when the relationships could be built outside of just from behind the screen. I was terrified. If I am to be honest, <laughs> I was excited and terrified really, really because of that. But I have to say, this is the largest company I've ever worked at. And from day zero, and the fact that I say day zero like, gives a hint as to my dev background, right? <laughs> from, 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 we started zero. From day zero, I was impressed by the level of craft and the level of thoughtfulness that went into not just starting, but the interviewing experience, and then starting, and then the onboarding experience. All of this with me sitting in my home office having stepped into an Netflix office once in my life for maybe 30 minutes, I was terrified. But after really getting into, into things with, with folks who were aiding me along that interviewing and onboarding journey, that fear really went away and I was just able to embrace it. Mm -hmm. What does your, your team look like? Like, who are some of the people that you manage? My team has, I, I was going to say, some of the most brilliant people at Netflix, but that wouldn't be fair because everyone in Netflix is is sort of scary smart. And that's, a, I think, a thing a lot of people say outside of Netflix, like, oh, folks at Netflix are, are really smart. Mm -hmm. People at Netflix are really smart. <laughs> I mean, back to this starting at day zero and how all of those interactions were were clearly well well thought out and well-defined. The thoughtfulness is almost a hallmark of, of what it feels like to interact with these folks on the outside. I'm sorry, you know, inside the company. My team is interesting because the team itself is new, but the people who are on the team are not. 
they've been at Netflix for you know an average of five years, four years maybe. And so they have such a deep understanding of not just the culture and sort of how we operate on a day-to-day basis, but the relationships with, with cross-functional partners across the globe. One of my amazing practices leads spent a lot of time in working with our APAC region and have, has deep relationships with the folks there. So they're really able to bring to me, the new person, this rich library of knowledge, which is incredibly helpful. You know, my folks come from varied, creative-focused backgrounds, creative strategy, uh, art direction, some from entertainment, some from outside of entertainment, some from marketing and advertising, but they all share a passion for TV and film and a passion for telling stories about TV and film, right? We tell stories about stories. I say that my team, with apologies to the late, great Stephen Sondheim, I say that creative practices focuses on the art of making art. Inside of Netflix, I think that's really important. We have these amazing editors and producers and strategists and designers spread across the planet, building out stories about stories, right? Designing the art for our titles, cutting the trailers and clips for our titles. And because my team has experience doing that actual hands-on work, they are able to use that experience. And like I said earlier, use the rich knowledge of all of the global cross-functional partnerships that they come to the team with and elevate the work that our stunning colleagues do to represent titles on platform. I think I'm the luckiest person on Netflix with my team. I remember from other people who I've had on the show before at Netflix, they told me that Netflix mostly hires like mid to senior career people, like you have to be at least kind of five years in to start at Netflix. Like there's no junior, you know, I'm using air quotes here, but there are no junior positions. Like everyone kind of starts at a high level because you're really in one way expected to kind of hit the ground running. But to your point about how global and cross-functional it is, I mean, you're trying to deliver this consistent experience across hundreds of thousands of customers And then Netflix is so unique because it's a tech company, but it's also media. And like, and I just know from working with tech startups that try to do media, that's often like mixing oil and water. Yeah, it's hard. And it's also really worth putting the effort in. I think the space in between art and science is somewhere that I've spent my career and Netflix has spent its time existing, like playing in in the space between, you know, I think if you are, and I'm I'm really talking about companies, and I think I could argue this for really strong creators as well. If you are solely focused on the art side, certainly in the medium that we're talking about here, right, in digital, Mm -hmm. if you are focused on the art side, you're missing out on the (laughs) abilities and capabilities that are possible if you lean into the science side. But if you just lean into the science side, and you don't have the art, then you've got math. And I right. say, and then you've got math knowing, Maurice, what, you know, what you studied in college. So, no <laughs> But I think you're a great example of what I mean in this combination of art and science, right? There is such something that, that builds upon each other and allows things to build and, and move and merge. And I think that's a fascinating place for a brand like Netflix to be, I think, from a brand tone perspective, but from a, the day-to-day perspective of Netflix employees, And I hope that 
that experience for our members comes across. Like, we talk a lot about our members all the time. Like we are member centric. We care so much about the member experience. Also, we are members too, mm-hmm. right? I make a this thing with my team every other weekly status meeting. What are you watching on Netflix right now? Let's talk about it a bit. Because at the end of the day, we're focused on a lot of the science stuff, but it's, it, it is science for a reason. It is science for the art. And that's just a, a fascinating space to play in. The interesting thing really also with Netflix is it's become just so ubiquitous within culture, like writ large. I mean, of course, you can, you know, look at the idiom of Netflix and chill and stuff like that. But with Netflix being such an early player in streaming and the rise with so many other streaming services, you know, Paramount Plus, HBO Max, et cetera, there's all these sort of affordances and things that they're inheriting from work that's been done at Netflix around how do we structure the UI? How do we provide a good user experience? And it's so interesting to like watch conversation about streaming services on Twitter. Cause one thing that I've found probably within the past couple of years, and I've, I've noticed this is that content, there are so many streaming services and places for content to land. And I mean, I'm using content in a broad sort of way to describe video, but I'll watch like 10 trailers and it's almost negligible which platform they're on. It could be on Tubi. It could be on Amazon Prime. It could be on Netflix. It could be on IMDb TV. It could be on a number of different platforms and stuff. But what sets it apart is that kind of experience of how do I use the app? Like people talk all the time about like, oh, HBO Max is the app. Like people say they've never seen an app that hates their their users like HBO Max or or like I use Paramount Plus and I actually actually Paramount Plus is the one service I've stopped using because the interface I found lacks the features that I would see on like a Netflix or like a Disney Plus or something for basic things that Netflix kind of pioneered like watch lists and favoriting and ratings and stuff like that. You know, I'll tell you the the secret. The secret is this amazing collection of smart people that work for Netflix that are spread across the globe. You know, just a, a little while ago, you talked about the level that we hire. And you said, I think the common thought is that folks are expected to kind of hit the ground running. And I'd say yes and no to that. So I've been at Netflix for about seven and a half months. Mm-hmm. And I think it took me about seven months to even understand like anything. <laughs> and the ongoing internal joke is like, it takes you, a, you should spend the first year just soaking up information, understanding things. Like we hired you because you're great, but your greatness at what you do, you need the, the information, like the context about how we think about problem solving, how we've solved problems in the past, who people are and what they do and what they're good at. You need some time inside before you're really able to use the skills that you're walking in with and and apply to these sorts of very difficult problems that we are spending 24-7, 365 across the globe attempting to solve for our members. I hope that that effort, well, it's funny, I was going to say I hope that effort is is clear to members, but what I actually hope is that it's not clear to members. I actually hope mm. that it's a magical experience that you sit down you grab your remote control, you go to Netflix, and you look, there are things that that you want to watch. 
it's effortless. The experience is so seamless across, and I have to say, across a number of different platforms. I mean, I probably think, like, my toaster probably has Netflix now. Like, it's on every game console. It's with every smart television. It's on every smartphone. Like, yeah. Yeah, we have an amazing partnerships team that works in a lot of those sorts of situations, and they're just they're they're just great. You should be able to enjoy this content where you're at, whether you're sitting on a flight and you, you've got your iPad with you, or you're on a train and you're lo- you're you've got your phone with you. You're sitting on your sofa and it's a television. You're on a laptop, or you're in the kitchen making toast. We really want the the ability for you to. Be entertained because that's our job. And, you know, I think there's a huge responsibility in entertainment brands and the folks who who, who work at them, certainly at, at brands as large as Netflix and with such a global footprint in the responsibility in the driving of global culture. And so you see this a lot or you saw this a lot during the pandemic, I think even more so than than pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Life is hard. And you've had a really difficult day, a difficult week. There's family stuff. There's work stuff. There's the state of the world in general. And what we want you to do, what we want to be able to do, what we focus so much time on, on an effort, on allowing you to do easily is to sit down on your sofa or in front of your laptop or in front of your toaster, grab a remote. And for 43 minutes, for 60 minutes, hopefully for longer, you are able to take the weight of the world off of your shoulders and immerse yourself in a story and live in that story and watch all of that story if you want, or stop and sort of reemerge back into your life and do some more things and then come back and reimmerse yourself in that story. That is an awesome responsibility that we have. And my team, because we are supporting the folks who make and the processes by which we make this creative work that represents titles on platform, we're like the front door and the last door to those those moments of joy. And that's mm-hmm. what I tell my folks to, that's what they focus on. That's what we focus on. That's why we are here at this company, to focus on giving members moments of joy. And I have to say, you know, the way that Netflix has sort of expanded in like the early 20 teens with not just expanding globally, but then also expanding into original content, like the development of original content sort of further kind of lets Netflix seep into the culture in that way, because as it expands out more, now we're making your own shows because there's a lot of, or I think it's probably is still this way. You have all this platform hopping of old shows and movies and stuff like particularly, I think with like a lot of NBC properties and stuff like the office, it was on Hulu. Now it's on Peacock. Now it's on this. And it's amazing how people will follow a platform for a show that probably hasn't been online or is still in syndication or something like that. But Netflix now moving forward with their own content as they also expand their global footprint, like at the same time, huge. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. There's real power on that. And you, you only get to those sorts of insights and then execute on those insights and then continue to execute on those insights with more insights and do that at a global scale. The only way to do that is with stunning colleagues. It's the only way. Yeah. To that end, like, what does a regular day look like for you? Does that exist? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> there, is, there is no regular day. Well, there are constants, let's say. And, and, and maybe it's almost like, what is a week 
generally look like. And the, the things that happen in any given week are totally different. I said to someone, said to a colleague the other day, there's never a boring day here, is there? They sort of looked at me and they're sort of laughing. I'm like, yep, yeah, no, 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 no. That just does not exist here. You know, in any given week, I am, I think like, like, like many people, we, we live on, on video chat. So I'm, I'm, I'm living on video chat a lot, but the conversations are so different and so rich and meaningful. Like, remember the days before everyone worked at home <laughs> and mm-hmm. you might have eight meetings a day, but only three of them are really important. Right. And like the other five, you could you could kind of phone it in sometimes. Apologies to my previous employers who may or may not be listening to this. Uh, you could be with your phone checking Twitter under the table kind of a moment. Not that I ever did such things, clearly. Um, <laughs> it's sort of the opposite of that here. So if, if I'm on 10 calls, each of those 10 calls is the most important call that day. And there were pre-reads read for those calls. There was prep work done. There's active participation in those calls, right? So in, I think in any given couple of days or a week period, I'm, I'm having a, it's a really a collaboration session meeting with my team. My team, we don't call them status meetings because it's a waste of everyone's time for all of us to sit on a call and go round robin and people tell me the status of their projects and initiatives. That's a waste of their time. I think it's disrespectful to their time. They can send me an email. They can update Slack. They can also do what they do because I trust them to do it because they're the best people in the world to do this job. Mm-hmm. I don't need to hover over them. So we take an hour every Monday and collaborate on on things. And we're, we'll take a moment to celebrate some of the latest content that we're all or some of us are into. And then we really get into sort of the nuts and bolts collaboration because these folks do have different backgrounds and different perspectives and different experiences. And because we are all, we're a little bit spread out and it's a new team, it's not as though we have spent so much time physically together. So this moment is where you can start learning about each other and what each person kind of bring to this collaboration moment. I do also have a weekly status. Also, it's less of a status. It's more a, here are big things that's going on with my peers and the person that we report to. And, you know, we're thinking of, of sort of bigger picture strategic vision and what are the priorities for this year and next and how our cross-functional partnerships are doing. And a lot of time for me is spent watching Netflix. And I like, I'm <laughs> smiling ear to ear when I say that. Um, I watch a lot of Netflix. I watch Netflix during the day, right? I, I said to my mom when I started, I get paid to watch a lot of Netflix and that's pretty <laughs> damn cool. And I like, right, I'm watching as a member, right? But I'm also, I'm watching to gauge where we're at creatively with title representation on platform. Does that feel right? And if it does, how can we do that? Not once, but twice, but 5,000 times. And then next year, 10,000 times. And then the next year, 30,000 times. This is, there's a lot of focus on getting content in. There's a lot of task forces that are we're really big on cross-functional partnerships and cross-functional relationships. So I'm on a couple of handfuls worth of internal working groups and task forces focused on all sorts of issues and initiatives and challenges to solve. Maybe there'll be a meeting of that and one person from the task force is going to present a deck or a super long memo about the latest findings from a test and we debate them and we dissent openly and give Hmm. feedback about what we're talking about in these conversations openly. This is kind of what my life is these days. I watch TV a lot and I talk a lot, which (laughs) for for a person who talks a lot and watches TV a lot when he's not working on Netflix, it's kind of a dream. (laughs) 
What would you say is the most challenging aspect of your new job? I think the most, maybe the most challenging and the most rewarding. The most rewarding is being able to work with colleagues across the world from completely different cultures and perspectives and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And then I think one of the more challenging parts is coordination of the working with amazing colleagues from across the world, right? Time zones are a thing. Um, It's always going to be painful for someone. It's either 8 a.m. for me or it's 8 p.m. for me. It's, you know, certainly when when I'm working with colleagues on the literal other side of the planet and trying to coordinate that with super busy schedules ends up being more challenging than you kind of think, oh, send a calendar invite, it's all fine. But mm-hmm. our days are so dynamic, and they change all the time, and these meetings run long, and maybe they run short, and then maybe there's a company town hall, and trying to, to keep schedules in that space when there are so many dependent time zone dependencies is, ends up being a significant challenge. And maybe that's a challenge for me, right? The old school Netflix folks do this with their eyes closed. I'm still catching up and trying to figure out kind of the, the best way to, you know, to handle that. You know, one thing about that, when we have sort of larger meetings, larger department meetings or all hands in our parts of the organization, we do those meetings twice hmm. because of time zones. So if you're presenting in a meeting, maybe you've got a couple hundred people on a call. For me, I'm in those conversations all the time and I'm presenting in those quite often. I'll have one at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday and then I'll have the exact same meeting the next day at 10 a.m. But just with, you know, right, like a different participants, but I'm, I'm saying the same thing twice. And there's a challenge in that sort of human communication moment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel a little bit like, like I imagine a politician feels giving a stump speech, right? And they're like, okay, hello. Rapid City. <laughs> and like, uh, you're actually in Albuquerque. Oh, sorry, I was in Rapid City yesterday, right? That's sort of when you say the same thing a number of times, it starts to become rote. And I think that would be unfair to our colleagues in our various locations across the world. So trying to keep that stuff fresh to get their excited, unique perspectives is also sort of challenging for me sometimes. But you know, you, <laughs> you work through it, you work through it. Now, when we had talked back in, in 2014, you know, I know we're talking now about Netflix, but I want to kind of go back to really track the progression to how you've gotten to where you are now. Back when we talked in 2014, you were fairly new, I think, CTO at this fintech startup called Goldbean. Tell me about that experience. How was it? Oh, Goldbean. Oh, wow. You know, it's funny how time, the perception of time is, is so, malleable and like the past two years feel like 30 years, right? So <laughs> really thinking back to the gold bean days, it's it's amazing. You know, I'm watching right now there's there's like what three or four prestige TV series about well-known startups happening right now, right? I don't know what they're called, but like there's the Uber show. <laughs> That's what I call them at home. There's the Uber show. There's the Theranos show. There's the Uber <laughs> show. Um I, I think I'm watching all of them at the same time. And, and I just, I, I laugh a lot when, when there are moments that they're talked about in these shows that I remember, like begging for funding, launch day, getting your first non-direct connected customers and that, and that, that sort of thing. Um, Goldbean was, was a blast. It was a massive learning experience. You'd wake up on a, on a Monday morning and you'd think, I am right this 
our product is right, our brand is right, everything, we're making the right decisions, we are so smart. <laughs> and then by lunchtime, you're like, wait, no, actually, we don't know anything. What the hell have we done with our lives? Um, and then it might change, it might go up again by dinner time. That sort of emotional roller coaster that I think is inherent in startups. Like, I guess when I think back on the Goldbean era, that's one of the things that's top of mind to me that riding that roller coaster. Yeah. So, Goldbean, I was so lucky to co found Goldbean with a former colleague. Um, she was actually a former boss, truth be told. And, you know, we were, you have colleagues, boss or not, you're close in when you're working together, and then time goes by. You both have different jobs, different parts of industries. You don't talk again. You know, you drop each other notes on Twitter or LinkedIn once a like Merry Christmas and Happy Birthday kind of a thing. I was so lucky to to reconnect with her and have the opportunity to build to build something from nothing and to think about all aspects during that building of something from nothing. Right, where not just the product, not just the tech of the product, but the design of the product the brand, but the brand values, right? And how those brand values would be expressed through visual design, but also through our own behavior <laughs> in the marketplace and how we raised money, really all, all of that coming from a core set of brand values, which is really about, could we have a financial brand that didn't just focus on straight white dudes? Now, how do you take that kind of a phrase and express it in design and express it in the tech and express it in product design? Solving those challenges was so much fun. And you were kind of going back into the startup world then, because prior to that, you were at Wyden and Kennedy, right? Before you yeah, got to Goldbean? Right. That's right. Yeah. My career has been startup, ad agency, startup, ad agency. At a certain point, it was like startup, 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 startup. Oh, no. Ad agency. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I've kind of, I've lived a lot in, in both of those worlds. Yeah. And I guess, you know, to follow that pattern, after this startup, you were at a dad agency. <laughs> right after that, you were at Deutsch, New York. How did that opportunity come about? Because you were at Goldbean for a, a good minute. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a funny story. You know, I think it was like four or five years of Goldbean. Yeah. And we did the typical, it's sort of like the typical startup life cycle, right? Even though there were all of the roller coaster on any given day, if you kind of zoom out from that, there was the typical have an idea. Ooh, that's a good one. Let's bootstrap it. Let's make it. Let's raise some money. Oh, let's raise some money. Oh, wait, we're a woman and black gay man as CTO led financial technology brand. So we raising money and raising money and raising money. And I could continue that mm -hmm. for a very long time before going on to the next parts of working a startup. But we got to the point I guess near the end where we had a, we had a lovely relationship with a company that ended up buying the gold bean. I was having drinks with an old colleague from my Wyden Kennedy days who for maybe a year or so, she was at, at, at Deutsch New York and she'd been trying to for a year to get me to talk to folks at Deutsch. And I kept saying, no, I have a job. It's called a startup. I ever heard of it? I was also sort of getting snippy about it after a while. But she was a friend. We finally had a moment in in a bar where I knew that, hey, we're actually going to be wrapping Goldbean up soon. Fine. I will talk to your precious Deutsch New York people. Fine. And so, you know, she, you know, she did an email introduction to some folks there. And a one conversation 
with a person who ended up becoming, you know, my Deutsch collaborator and then personal friend, one conversation, I, I was sold. I was excited to join Deutsch specifically because of the people. It's always about people for me. Like the, the culture was much, much around, hey, here's the thing. Let's figure out how to do that better. And that really, really kind of called to me. It's funny. Where did we, where you and I spoke at a conference together in Atlanta? What was that? That was How Design Live in 2016. Wow, 2016. I remember standing on that, on a stage there. And I know this happened. I hope it's not a recording of it. Um, (laughs) I stood on a stage and I said something like, I will never go back to advertising. And, you know, the crowd sort of giggles. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. I will never go back to advertising. Fast forward two years. (laughs) So never say never, I guess. (laughs) What are some of the like things you worked on? Do I just work? Uh, was and is focused on on helping brands through inflection points. Like there's a product launching. There's a major change in company leadership, and now there's a there's a new brand tone or or value or look and feel or something. But no, the, I think the specialty of Deutsch was finding those moments of change and developing comms around those moments of change and to support those moments of change in the eyes of, of a brand's consumers. I think a, a good example, uh, some work that we did for, for AB InBev, the world's largest brewer, speaking of, of global scale, um, AB InBev has got it. I was going to say, we designed and built an app called Hoppy, but that doesn't come close to kind of what the project was. That's what I loved about the work at Deutsch. It wasn't, it wasn't just the, what is the tactic that we're leaning in on. It's why is this tactic important? What larger program in an inflection point for a brand is this tactic a part of? For for AB InBev specifically, it was around really wanting all of their employees to have a deep, deep, deep appreciation of and understanding of beer. And I think that might sound a little silly sometimes, like, well, it's a brewer. How do they not understand and love beer? But, you know, at a brewer, there's a lot of employees. It's not just the folks in the brewery, right? <laughs> you got salespeople, you got marketing people, you have operations people, you have number crunchers. And there was a real desire by, by the heads of AB InBev to internally have every single AB InBev employee be educated about beer, be able to, to champion beer and what beer could do from a cultural perspective, like, like try, pulling people together and having sort of moments of, of meaning in people's lives who work at AB InBev and how could every employee of, of AB InBev share that, that passion for beer to their friends and family and so on and so on. So the, one, one of the tactics that, that we came up with was, was called Hoppy. And it was an app, internal only. It has since gone public on the web, I believe, but it was an iOS and, and Android app that essentially gamified education. And we took a lot of cues from you know, how, how people use their phones <laughs> when they're not supposed to be at jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, really wanted a little like, bite-sized content. AB InBev has a super competitive internal culture. We leaned in on that and some of the gamification as well. So the idea was you log into Hoppy, you read some bite-sized content 
about beer and it's all different sorts of courses and from beer history to beer science to, to the making of beer. It was no very specifically about beer, not so much a sales tool for a B and Bev brands. No, right. It was about beer. Mm-hmm. You, you read this content, you interact with these little games and then you get quizzes. If you answer the quiz, you get a badge. Every badge comes along with beer coin. Yes, I know. Every time, <laughs> I, every time I would say it then and said it now, I just like cringe a little bit. I won't take up too much time complaining about crypto and my thoughts on that. But the idea was giving the AB and Beth employees, again, from the super competitive internal culture, like a thing to compete with. We built leaderboards, not just in the app, but around offices. We allowed managers to create what we call beer code, C-O-D, like a QR code. Uh-huh. Beer code. And you go into an admin system, you, you make a beer code, and that beer code could be for a, an extracurricular meeting you were having with your team or a happy hour that you wanted your encourage your team to show up to. You'd make it, you'd print it, you'd stick it on the wall. Every employee that walks in, they log into Hoppy as, they walk in, as they're walking in. They scan that code. They get some beer coin. They move up in the leaderboard. And all the content could always be refreshed, and it was all very beautiful. And this, um, this, this amazing design that the super talented product design team at, at Deutsche New York created, that sort of deep, deep, deep brand integration coming through via a digital tactic for employees, that's the sort of work that, that Deutsche did and does. And it's, it's work that, that I, you know, years later, am still super proud of. When you look back at both your time working at Goldbean, which was a startup, and working at Deutsche New York, which was an agency, when you look at those two like specific experiences, what unique skills do you think you're able to bring now to your work at Netflix, which is in like a totally different space? The ability to tell a story succinctly, last answer to your question notwithstanding. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like taking super, super complicated concepts and distilling them down to their essence, not 30 slides, but two. Mm-hmm. Look, when you're, when you are the digital person in a non only digital environment, like a big ad agency and anyone who, who is in that position sort of understands. And I think even folks who are, who are in sort of new areas of larger, older companies will understand this. You run out of time in a meeting. You run mm-hmm. out of time in a pitch because your part of the pitch is like slide 38 of 50. I'm sorry. Your part of the, 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 the pitch is like slide 38 out of 40. And by the time you get to slide 37, you look at the clock and it's almost time. And all your colleagues are looking at you like, okay, you had a whole lot to say when we practiced this pitch, but now you have seven seconds to say it because we took too long to say our part. You don't have time anymore. Go. Mm-hmm. When you experience that over a career, my, my ad agency career of being the digital person in these sometimes non-digital native environments, you get really good at taking 30 pages of really complicated stuff and distilling it down to three sentences. It's a, it's a skill that has come in handy at a place like Netflix where, where things are so complicated and so cross-functional and cross-functionally complicated. 
cutting down to the essence has really, really served me well. Now, from what you're able to share, I mean, you've already shared so much about, you know, Netflix. What would you say is probably the most surprising thing that most people don't know about Netflix? Netflix employees pay for Netflix. Really? We pay a subscription just like everybody else. And <laughs> listen, I got to say, when I got the the message, when I logged into Netflix one day and I saw that my, my subscription price went up, I did have a second of a gasp. <laughs> I did have a moment of like, hey, wait a second. Yeah. And I remember when I worked there. Yes, we pay for Netflix. I think it's actually really important that we pay for Netflix. We are members too. And when you pay for something, even if you work at the place that makes it, even if your work is available on it, come at it from a different perspective. It's much more than empathy for members when you are a member. We too are sensitive to price changes and know that they are done with respect. We too are excited by content. We too are sad and disappointed when our favorite show isn't renewed. And really being having that perspective into the product as expressed by I'm paying the same price everybody else is paying, I think really gives us a strong, strong perspective when we are working on things that are that are potentially challenging or difficult. That is wild. I didn't know that y'all were paying for Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean Ooh, interesting. Okay. So yeah, when those prices go up, y'all feel it too. So I guess that's <laughs> that's a little bit of uh, of empathy out there for folks that didn't know that. How have you changed since we last spoke here on the show seven years ago? I think I've realized what I'm good at. I don't always know what I'm good at, to be to be fair. Um, but I think I've I've kind of narrowed down what I'm good at and I've embraced what I'm good at. And that is living in the space between art and science and leading teams creatively in that space between art and science. And I think earlier parts of my career, I sort of fell into this in-between space. It was never a conscious, intentional choice to sort of be in the middle. But, you know, I was started out way back in the day as a dev but I was a creative, but you know, my day job, I'm writing code. And I just happened to be the one of all the devs in whatever place I was at at the time that could have a conversation with designers or creatives and really understand their perspective and then translate that perspective. And in the startup world, that was a superpower. I didn't realize that I, that was a superpower. And in the agency world, again, it was a superpower. I didn't quite realize it was a superpower at the time. And I think as I've matured as a human, as I've grown as a leader, and I think as I've grown as a creative, I've understood that as being a major tool in my tool belt. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that it's a tool in my tool belt. I know how to wield it. And I knew how to wield it back when we first spoke. I think I didn't know how well I actually could wield it. And I think I'm, I'm really doing that now. Are you where you wanted to be at in this stage in your life? Well, listen, having gotten started in my career in the dot-com boom, I thought by now I'd be retired on a yacht. <laughs> the yacht would be called the Husani. It'd have my face on it, giving the middle finger to everybody as I go from port to port, island to island, living my retired before mid-40s amazing life. That didn't happen. <laughs> 
It took me a little while to realize that wasn't going to happen. But you know what? Yes, I am. I have always wanted to be in a place professionally and personally where my passions for storytelling can have an impact on more than a handful of people and a lasting impact on more than a handful of people. And it's been a long road. I've been doing this for a long time. But I am certainly now in a place where where my creative ideas, my creative leadership, and the wielding of the in-between art and science tool can really have an impact on the lives of hundreds of millions of people. And that's what I've really always wanted. And that, I feel like I, I have that now. Do you have a dream project that you would like love to do someday? I mean, it, it honestly sounds like this work that you're doing on Netflix is kind of I mean, I've known you for 20 plus years, but like this sounds like the pinnacle of where you are in your career. But is there more that you want to do, like like bigger dreams and aspirations? I want to write a Broadway musical. Hmm. All I get is a hmm. Wow. Wow. No, no. <laughs> like, what would it be about? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But I, but I want one. Look, I was I discovered a love for musical theater when I was a super, super young kid and saw Sarafina on Broadway. It's up to Google what year that was because I really don't remember. I was I was super <laughs> young. And then my love for musical theater was cemented when I became obsessed with Little Shop of Horrors in the late eighties. Mm. And it's just sort of grown and been there ever since. On my on the wall that I sit in front of when I'm on video chat all day, every day there, I mean, there are a bunch of pieces of art and some things that are meaningful to me. And, but on one side, there's a, there's a Star Trek poster, Star Trek II: the wrath of Khan best film ever. And then there's also a, a, a stylized drawing of a, of the logo of Miss Saigon. That show has had big impact and meaning on my taste in theater and, understanding of the interplay between words and song and i don't know what my show would be about but i i would like to before i leave this planet to whatever comes next write a show and and hopefully have the same sort of impact um, emotionally on people that that the work that i that i love so much has had on me i mean you're in new york if there's any place to to write the next broadway musical that's it you know like all you have to do is get Netflix to give, I don't know, Lin-Manuel Miranda a project or something. Find a way for y'all to work together and make that happen. I mean, seriously, because, I mean, Netflix is, has, I mean, we're talking a lot about Netflix because you work there, but just to kind of talk about more with their expansion, they've gone into games. They have a book club. I'm surprised that they haven't went into theaters. I know Amazon did that with uh, with their, like, Amazon Studios. They bought, I think it was landmark i think it was landmark theaters they bought that chain or they wanted to buy it or something but like i'm surprised there's not like brick and mortar netflix theaters i'm pretty sure that's probably somewhere down the pipeline you know we do own one theater hey here's a here's another maybe thing that that people people don't know about netflix we own a theater in new york a, a movie theater oh nice uh, yeah the, the paris theater it's a beautiful old landmark theater and and there are screenings there Oh, and it's a public, th- it's a theater, it's a movie theater. You can buy tickets and see a movie there. You know, Power of the Dog was was there a couple of weeks ago. There, there's something happening there tonight with Judd Apatow that, you know, is open to the public as in you can buy tickets like 
mm-hmm. anyone else. But yeah, we own that that theater, which is a lot of fun. Aside from the musical, <laughs> what is it that you want your legacy to be? One of my early pre-career claims to fame such that it is, is I had a, a First Amendment related lawsuit with with my high school in the town I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And back then, I really wanted to leave behind a changed world. There are a million and one things wrong. If I could change four of them, no one ever needs to know my name. No one ever needs to know that I was the person who changed those four things, as long as those four things got changed. And I guess I've gone from then. I've I've run startups. I've I've been at companies big and small. I've done all of this stuff. I've spoken on stages. I've been around the world, all, all of this stuff. And I think all I still want to do is change four things on this planet for the better. And so the people who come after me don't experience those four things of the million things being wrong as wrong. You know, one thing I didn't even touch on that we, you know, we focused on your work at Goldbean and Deutsch, but like, you've also done a fair amount of like civic tech work in these past seven years. Like I remember vividly you being invited to the White House, Obama, not Trump, (laughs) invited to the White House. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was invited to the White House twice. Let's just be clear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so the first invite was was the the Obama administration understood the the importance of inclusion. And there was a, a, a group of LGBTQ senior technology executives invited to spend a day at the White House and and put our heads together on the problems that plague our society and humanity. So of those like a million and one problems that I, that I, you know, acknowledge exist in the, in the reality we live in, could we take like 15 of those and, and solve them, right? Like, what do we think would be great, great moves to protect against climate change? How can we think about employment and unemployment, certainly, you know, in the tech sector, since we were, we were folks coming, coming out of the tech sector. And that was, that was just a, a fascinating moment, an amazing experience. I've developed like lifelong friends from from that moment. Um, then it actually then led to the to the next moment later that year, and it was 2016, I believe. Yeah, it was 2016 because it, the last time was was actually post election. That election, it was around. Okay, we made some really good strides in that first summit around digital and technology employment outside thinking about it as not just being an issue in the major cities but there really being huge opportunity outside of the coasts and the major cities you know there are smart people outside of just new york and la shocker i know <laughs> how can how can we spread the unheard of inhuman civilization wealth that has been generated by the internet and digital technology and IT in general, outside of just those centers from like a jobs program and and continuing education perspective. We were worried that with the election having gone the way it did, that any strides that we'd made, you know, we had folks from the Department of Labor involved in a lot of the conversations we had in that first summit. Our assumption, a safe assumption, was that all of that was going to get thrown in the trash. And so the second time we a bunch of us got together at the White House was around how can we, if we can't ensure that it's not going to get thrown in the trash, how can we on the outside of 
being in the executive branch, continue kind of driving these initiatives. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that continuing to drive those initiatives were one of a million problems caused by that guy. So I think (laughs) we all then found ourselves really busy from that date, I mean, through, through forever now, because the fight against fascism never actually ends. But yeah, I think when this technology was new, we didn't know what it could do. A lot of us were naive in thinking that it was all a net good and connecting people was always a net good and, and base core infrastructure technology was always a net good because it was, it didn't have intention. And then over time we learned that that's not true. And now we recognize that, hi, AI, bias, yup. Hi, moderation on social platforms, a big issue. Hi, mm-hmm. identity on social platforms, a big issue. You know, I look back at those early times and think about how and how naive a lot of us were, myself included, about what these technologies would do. And so now I think those of us who, are, who remain in the space, and certainly even more so folks that are new to these spaces, have a responsibility to use these tools for good and not for evil, an active good, not just being neutral. Technology is not neutral. That's a responsibility we have as creatives, as technologists, as creative technologists, as humans, as Americans, if that's what we are. Like We have these things on our hand. we got to use them right. So focusing on the betterment of society is it's clearly perhaps never far from, from top of mind for me. Now, actually, my, my little sister is running for Congress. Um, I think we share a lot of the we share a lot of similar perspectives on on the need for being involved in the government of the world that that we live in. Well, Husami, you know, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, and everything? Where can they find that online? On Twitter, I am at Husani Oakley. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Husani. And if you can't remember any of that, I'm at Husani.com on the web. All right. Sounds good. Well, Husani Oakley, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier in the interview, we've known each other for such a long time. So I already knew this was going to be a great interview, but really getting to hear you talk about the work that you're doing with Netflix, the fact that you're able to take the talent that you have and be able to apply that across a global scale with a company like Netflix. I feel like this is exactly where you need to be right now. And I'm excited to see what the next thing will be. I hope it's the musical. I'll be there. I'll buy a ticket for the musical. If it happens in the future, I'll be there. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. A blast as always. Big, big thanks to Husani Oakley. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Husani and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We would love to hear from you out there on social media, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. 
The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Oh,